God does have a plan. He does have a plan, and it is a good plan. It's not necessarily an easy plan. It's not always a, a comfortable plan, but it's the best plan that there could ever be for this world, and, and we are all a part of it. That's, that's the good news. So when you think about God's great plan, I think that many of us, if not most of us, probably tend to think more about His plan for us as individuals maybe than we do about His great plan for the world. I think that's just our nature. Probably the majority of us spend more time thinking about and dwelling on His specific plan for me and my life than we do on His kingdom plan or His plan for the whole church. But the more that we try to make God and His plan about our own individual life and experiences apart from His plans for the entire body of believers, the, the church, and instead take that more encompassing worldwide plan, and you know, we sort of sometimes stick it in the back seat somewhere. We talk about it at Bible study or other small group meetings at church. When we do that, it's really a disservice that we're actually doing to ourselves. And, and the less His plan for us as individuals is actually realized in our lives when we do that, because the two are actually inextricably linked. In truth, the greatest gift that we could ever give to ourselves is to think less about ourselves and His plan for just myself and spend more time focusing on Him and His plan for the world because God doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. He created us by His will and for His good pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And when it says by your will, the word, the word will in the original Greek is the word thelema. And of course it, it does mean will, but it also means pleasure. So this ESV translation that we just read is correct, but so is the King James Version, which reads this way, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Okay, so we exist by His will and for His pleasure. It's not the other way around. And as badly as secular philosophers and commentators want it to be the other way around, they desperately want anything that we deify to serve us at our beck and call according to our own will. And yet because the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them cannot be submitted by us or to us, instead of yielding their pride and humbling themselves before Him, they simply choose to deny His existence. It's a lot easier that way than admitting that there is in fact someone higher, someone greater, someone more powerful and more knowledgeable and more capable than us, someone that cannot ever be fully understood, someone that we cannot uh, quantify or control or limit, we can't examine him in a test tube, someone who transcendently rules over all of creation, who infinitely exceeds our finite selves in every way. That's just too much for some people. People who have to feel that they're in charge of their own destiny and if they try hard enough can figure all of this out and then fit it into a set of parameters that they can control. But he can never be controlled. He can never be reined in or measured or even fully understood by us because he is and always will be greater. 
And yet this same God who created this planet and the solar system and the universe and everything else for himself, for his pleasure and by his will, has created a great plan for all of it, including you and I. The beautiful part of that is we're a big part of that plan, so much so that he created a very specific role for each one of us to play in his great and good plan. And that should bring us great comfort and and joy. And yet, if we choose to only focus on one tiny part of that all-encompassing plan, we're missing out on so much that we could be experiencing even in this life because we're ignoring all of the other parts of the plan that we're supposed to be interacting with as members of his body. If you're a, a professional actor and the director of a new movie calls you and asks you to play a part in his new movie and he sends you the script and if you read the entire script and study it diligently and you research the history and time period and culture that the movie script is set in, you can learn what the movie is about, how the movie starts, how the movie ends, what other uh, people in the movie that you'll be interacting with are like, what their characters are like. You can learn the plot, the theme, the message that the movie is trying to convey. You've been given every opportunity to have a really complete understanding of the whole picture, the entire message of the film, and how your part of it fits into the grand scheme. But instead, if you take the script home and you only read your lines and nothing else, you don't bother with the bigger story, the overall theme, the the narrative, or how the story unfolds. You don't really understand the other actors, the parts they play, and how to best interact with them. All you're really focused on is your specific part, just your lines, to the exclusion of the rest of it. How effective do you think that you would be acting in that film? How well would you be able to contribute to the overall story if all that you've focused on or all that you've paid any attention to is your own part, right? Because, of course, your job as an actor in that film is to contribute to the overall film, not just your personal performance. Well, it's kind of like that. When we go through life only thinking about his plan for us without taking the time to really dig into the whole script and really try to understand the entire story and the other people in that story that we interact with and his vision for the entire narrative, his his plan for the whole world. And so as we continue in our sermon series today, we're working our way through the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about God's great plan and how even though we may not always understand it, We're very much a part of it. And it is therefore in our best interest to set our minds and hearts not only to our individual part in that plan, but also the plan overall. Always keeping that bigger story in view. So let's turn to chapter 8 of the book of Daniel, and we'll pick up right where we left off last week, starting with the first four verses. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last." I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So in Belshazzar's third years, 550 B.C., 
The same year that Cyprus conquered uh, the Medes and united those two kingdoms between the Medes and the Persians, well before he conquers uh, Babylon, which happened 11 years later, which we saw back in chapter 5, Daniel has another vision during Belshazzar's reign. This is while Babylon is still very securely in power. So much like chapter 7, this is a flashback in chronology, if you're looking chronologically at the book. And so although this vision deals primarily with the emergence of the Greek Empire and beyond, the Greek Empire at the time of this vision wasn't much of anything. So this is well beyond what anyone would have naturally envisioned happening given the current state of the Babylonian Empire and its firm grip on power at this point, okay? And Daniel was in Susa, that's a city about 200 miles east of Babylon in an area called Elam, which is between Babylon and Persia. It's modern-day Khuzestan. It's north of the, of the Persian Gulf. And specifically, he says that he was at the Ulai Canal or the Ulai River. Daniel sees this ram on the bank of the river with two horns, one being higher than the other. And much like the bear that Daniel saw in his vision in chapter 7 that represented Medo-Persia, this ram also represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And we'll see that a little later in the chapter as the angel Gabriel explains. But we also know from historical uh, records, including the writings of uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, he was a, a, a 4th century historian, historian, that the Persian rulers would wear a ram's head as the headdress, as they stood at the head of their armies before battle. The ram was, in fact, the, the national emblem of Persia. There were images of rams stamped on their coins. So this ram in Daniel's vision clearly represents the Medo-Persians. And just as the bear in chapter 7 had one side raised up, representing the Persians who were the stronger component in their partnership with the Medes, so too the one taller horn on the ram represents the Persians in the vision. So this is, a, again, as we saw with last week, it's a flashback to these previous visions, but each one goes deeper in detail. And then Daniel says that he saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast uh, could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And we know that the Medo-Persians exerted their power in theaters of war to the west against the Greeks, the north against the Scythians, and the south against the Egyptians. And they did take some land to the east, but there were no major conquests in that direction. So a very accurate uh, and prophetic vision as we can now look back in history and confirm all of these events. All right, let's keep reading verses 5 through 8. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power." And then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so now Daniel sees a male goat coming from the west without touching the, the ground. It has a single horn between its eyes. It's a, like a unigoat. Um, <laughs> a little rainbow behind it. <laughs> I have a seven-year-old daughter. I have unicorns everywhere in my house. Uh, 
sorry. And just as the leopard with wings in chapter 7 represented the Greeks, likewise, this goat represents the Greek empire with Alexander the Great as its leader. Okay, like, like the ram with the Persians, the goat was actually a common representation of the Greek empire. In fact, several scholars throughout history have pointed out that at least 200 years before the time of Daniel, the Greeks were commonly referred to as the goat's people. It's worth noting that these passages... Uh, in the Bible, they drive secular historians crazy because for years they've been confounded by the accuracy and detail of these prophecies. And so they try to assert that there must uh, have been someone, uh, a historian, later in history posing as Daniel, making these writings because there's no way that Daniel could have written them because they're far too specific to deny their accuracy, and yet they don't believe uh, that God could have inspired prophetically people to write. And so Daniel uh, writes this very accurate, um, uh, fulfilled prophecy, as we'll see. He says, the goat came from the west, the Greek empire rose from the west. Daniel says, the goat came without touching the ground, meeting with great speed. And of course, um, the speed of the rise and conquering of the other empires by the Greeks was unprecedented in ancient history. Alexander the Great, leading the Greeks, conquered most of the civilized world in a decade. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Daniel says the goat had a conspicuous or notable horn, which represents Alexander the Great, who was obviously very conspicuous and quite notable. Daniel says the goat ran at the ram with powerful wrath and was enraged at him, struck him and broke his two horns and cast him down and trampled him. We know that the Greek Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire passionately hated each other. In fact, some of the greatest and most fierce battles in all of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians. Some impressive accounts of battles, if you're interested in that sort of thing. And we also know that the Greeks very swiftly conquered the Medo-Persians, ending that great empire. And then Daniel says, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And we know that after Alexander died prematurely, the Greek empire was divided up between four rulers, four of his generals, who ruled those four dominions separately. In other words, not as a single empire, which it had been, which corresponds with Daniel's vision of the four horns rising up toward the four winds of heaven, or separate from one another. And there were these four generals, Cassander, whose territory included Greece and the entire region there, Lysimachus, whose territory included Asia Minor, Seleucus, whose territory included Syria and Israel's land, and then Ptolemy, whose territory included Egypt. And the, the true greatness of the, of the Alexander's empire was not only in its vast spread and rule and conquering of most of the civilized world, but it was truly in its cultural power as Alexander was completely bent on spreading Greek civilization and Greek culture and Greek language across every land and people that he conquered. And we're going to come back to this point in a little bit because it factors heavily into the message of this vision. But for now, let's keep reading verses 9 through 14. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Excuse me, I lost my place. And a host will be given over to it, 
together with the regular burnt offering because of transgressions, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so coming out of the four horns from the Greek empire, Daniel sees a little horn, which corresponds with the little horn in chapter 7. And although this little horn has a future fulfillment uh, in the Antichrist of the last days, which we'll talk about in a moment, just as there was a historical fulfillment to the different beasts and animals in these visions of Daniel, there was a historical fulfillment to this little horn, and it prefigures its future fulfillment in the Antichrist to come. Um, As mentioned, when the four successors of Alexander the Great divided up the Greek Empire, the the Seleucid dynasty, which ruled over Syria and Israel's land, ultimately that area came under the rule of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He gained control from Seleucus, the original general that had control. He did that through murder, kidnapping, uh, bribery. He was a he was a real quality guy. Uh, in fact, his name was Ant- uh, Antiochus IV was his given name, but he assumed the title uh, Epiphanes, which meant illustrious because he was obviously so humble. Uh, actually, it'd be like me putting Pastor Rob Rucci the illustrious on my nameplate on my door, which I think kind of sounds cool, but that might be too much. So, The Jews, uh, who were suffering horrendously under his reign, actually twisted his name. I love this. They called him uh, Antiochus Epimenes, which meant Antiochus the madman. Uh, So Daniel says, this little horn threw down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. Antiochus murdered other rulers. He persecuted the people of Israel, God's people. Daniel says that the little horn exalted himself as the prince of the host. Antiochus blasphemed God and commanded that people direct their worship toward himself. Daniel says that the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Antiochus put an end to the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem and he actually desecrated the temple. At one point, set up an idol of Zeus and he desecrated the altar by offering a a pig and sprinkling its juices in the sanctuary. Okay? Daniel says that the little horn will throw truth to the ground and prosper. And history tells us that Antiochus opposed God at every turn and he in fact prospered. This man was evil incarnate. He was an infamous persecutor of the Jews and more than happy to use violence and murder bribery, kidnapping to compel people toward his own evil ends. Some of the uh, apocryphal writings, those writings in between the New and Old Testaments, the, the Maccabees in particular, describe how Antiochus blasphemed God, persecuted the Jews. Some estimates say that he murdered as many as 100,000 Jewish people during his reign of terror. And so uh, we see all of these horrible events right up through the reign of the little horn against God's people, fulfilled through all of these ancient empires. But it's also true that these events prefigure the events yet to come at the end of this age that correspond with much of the book of Revelation. Daniel says that he heard a voice explain that for 2,300 evenings and mornings, this terror will reign and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And 2,300 days is nearly seven years. We know that the temple 
was cleansed in December of 165 BC, actually December 25th, 165 BC by Judas Maccabeus. And if you count back 2,300 days from then, we come to the year when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution in earnest in 171 BC. It's incredibly accurate, these prophecies. So we see this literal fulfillment of this prophecy already taking place in history. But because the prophecy also prefigures uh, the time of the end according to the angel Gabriel, which we'll see in verse 17, and according to Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, he makes it clear that the complete fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy won't happen until the Roman destruction of the temple, which we know is in AD 70, and the image of the Antichrist is set up in the last days, which we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, and those passages have yet to be fulfilled. So we know that there are end-time events that are yet to happen. That will mirror these historical events in many ways. In fact, I believe a part of the reason that we have all of this history is so that those living at the time in the end can look back and know when the times are actually happening because we have a mirror to look at all of these things that happen. And yet, this passage here is an excellent example of why we need to be very careful when we try to take times and dates and seasons that are described in the Bible and then we attempt to calculate end time events down to the day or month or year and then convince ourselves that we figured it out and then we significantly alter our lives and families and ministries based on those calculations and predictions, okay? Uh, one very popular and quite tragic interpretation of this passage was when William Miller took one year for every day in the vision or 2300 year days to calculate that Jesus would return in 1844, 2,300 years after Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple. And out of his predictions, a movement was born that ended up becoming the Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, several other false religious movements were born out of William Miller's uh, predictions. Okay, Adam Clark, who is actually a very respected Methodist theologian in his day, believed that 2,300 days should also be counted as years, dated, and he dated the, the prophetic fulfillment from the time of Alexander's invasion of Asia Minor in 334 BC, which by that estimate would put the second coming of Christ in AD 1966. Now, he was not only obviously wrong, because we're all still here, but a lot of people were led into very serious error because of that. Okay, when, uh, when Christians, and particularly Christian leaders, attempt to predict the dates and times of apocalyptic events and then are proven to be wrong about those dates, it seriously damages our credibility with other believers and particularly with unbelievers. As noted, uh, entire false religions, uh, movements have been born out of those predictions, those miscalculations. 1844, Jesus is coming back. 1966, Jesus is coming back. Uh, if you're at least my age or older, you probably remember 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Right? That was a frenzy. I had lots of friends and even some church leaders who quit paying their bills months before, quit paying their mortgages months before that because of these predictions. Y2K was going to be the end of our world economy and the beginning of end time events. I was sad that my computer didn't blow up. <laughs> I needed a new one. I had to keep that one for a while. 
And most recently, many were convinced that in September of this year, because of blood moon prophecies corresponding with significant Jewish festivals, that everything was going to come crashing down around us. And a lot of people usually end up being negatively affected by these predictions when they don't come to pass. Now, listen to me. These visions and prophecies are there for a reason. This vision in chapter 8 was 350 years before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. These prophecies are real. Jesus is coming back for us. There will be times of tribulation and persecution for the church. In fact, that's happening all over the world right now. You just turn on the news, right? So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying let's make light of these prophetic passages, not at all. Uh, many of them have been fulfilled, and those yet to be, they most certainly are going to be, without a doubt. My point is, let's spend our time and energy and resources not trying to pin down a date for these events, which inevitably ends up becoming the primary focus for those who fall into these patterns. It's a big problem with, with folks when they get overzealous about dates. Our gospel focus becomes unbalanced because we're so zeroed in on a particular date or time or month to the point that we lose sight of what Jesus commanded us to do and who he commanded us to be every single day that we're here. He said, make disciples, not converts to our new Jesus is coming back in 1988 club. He said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. All, all of it. Everything that I've commanded you, not just the parts that we're most interested in, that pique our interest at any given time. We need to be balanced in our approach to life and ministry, always teaching what the Apostle Paul referred to as the whole counsel of God in Acts 20, 27. And uh, of course, that, that applies to all areas, by the way, of theology and doctrine. We need to apply this to all areas of theology and doctrine. We just happen to be talking about prophetic scriptures today. We need to be balanced in what we teach. We need to be intellectually honest in our approach to scripture, not overreaching by being dogmatic about areas of scripture that we do not have all of the answers to. When the disciples asked Jesus when he would restore the kingdom back to Israel, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And I'm pretty certain that if that answer was good enough for his disciples then, it is good enough for his disciples now. So take that for what it's worth. That's a friendly reminder to keep our entire gospel focus focused on the entire gospel. You with me? We should keep our entire gospel focus focused on the entire gospel. Now, all of that is a lot of looking back, a little bit of looking forward. But as we continue to read, we really get into the meat of this passage because we can't alter or affect what God has already laid out in his great plan. He isn't, he isn't uh, asking Daniel here for permission or approval to do what he has already planned to do. Now, he's simply informing Daniel of what is most certainly going to happen, right? And obviously, uh, it's really important to understand that, and we've covered that part. And so in the second half of this chapter, what we experience alongside this supernatural vision is the very human response to the revelation of God's great plan. We get to see how Daniel reacts to this vision, and I find it 
very compelling and instructive for my own life when you realize what Daniel's perception of God's plan was and then his subsequent reaction to it. It's fascinating. So this is the part that I really want to focus on for the remainder of this message because I think we stand to gain some real valuable perspective on our own here when it comes to God's great plan for our lives. Okay, so let's keep reading verses 15 through 17. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. This is much like his reaction to the vision of the Christ in chapter 7. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And so again, there's confirmation here that these events look toward the end of the age, even though there was a prefigured fulfillment, as we've already discussed. But what I really find fascinating is even though God was revealing his plan to Daniel, one of the best and brightest men of his era, a faithfully devout man. He was loved by God, serving God with every ounce of his ability and strength and commitment and giftings in good times, in incredibly difficult times. The same guy who was able to interpret everyone else's dreams. I find it utterly fascinating, given all that he had going for him and his long relationship and track record prophetically with God, that still Daniel didn't understand God's plan. Verse 15 says he was trying to understand the vision, but he didn't, even after it's explained to him, as we'll see in verse 27. Daniel is a a hero of the faith. He's one of the greats in all of history. He was God's man to the core. He was as faithful as they come, and yet clearly, he didn't always understand God's plan. And that, that may bring you great comfort, or it may cause you great distress, depending on your perspective, but either way, it should certainly make us realize that there will be times in our own lives, no matter how close to or how far from God we've been, no matter how gifted or talented or experienced in spiritual matters that we are, there will be times in our lives when we simply will not understand God's plan for us. There will be times when we just won't get it, and yet it's not uncommon for us when we glimpse, uh, we get a glimpse of what God is doing in our lives and we have no idea what it means or where it will lead us or maybe why he's taking us through whatever it is we're going through, and we all have those times, right? It's not uncommon for us sometimes to believe that either we've done something wrong or we're not where we should be with God. Otherwise, we'd always understand what he's doing in our lives, but look, There are times when nothing could be further from the truth. You may be doing just fine with God, faithful in your walk with Christ, living according to His Word and in consistent communion with Him, and all of a sudden you're broadsided by something that you don't understand. And when you seek God, maybe you still don't get the clear answers that you're looking for. It is in those moments that we will so often begin searching for the spiritual chink in our armor or the place in the road where maybe we took a wrong turn and we pray things like, oh God, why, why is this happening? What does this mean? Can't there be another way? And look, there's actually nothing wrong with praying those kinds of prayers as long as they're honest and we're honestly seeking 
answers, which is exactly what Daniel is doing here. He says, I sought to understand it. He was searching for answers from God. And so the point is not that we shouldn't ask or that we can't ask. Of course we can, and we should. The point is that if we don't understand, even after asking, we still must be faithful to God in our response and trust that whatever he's doing is for the good of his plan and for us in that plan. Because although it is possible to not hear from God uh, or understand his voice because of our own sin, yes, that's true, or rebellious living against his word, there are times when our ability to understand his plan has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of faithfulness or commitment on our part. We're simply just not going to always understand what God is up to at times in our lives. The first six verses of Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That is the description of a God who is neither confused or at a loss for what the plan is. But listen to verse 6. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. In other words, I could never begin to fully understand all that you are, all that you know, and all that you do for me. It is patently beyond what I can comprehend. We simply will not, because we cannot, always understand what God is doing. His great plan at times uh, will be a complete mystery to us, And yet in those times, we must remain faithful to him and his word, always trusting that, that uh, even though we may not understand what's happening, we know that he does. And we know that he's in control, fully in control. He's sovereign. Okay, let's finish our text for this morning. And then we're going to look at one more response by Daniel to God's great plan. We'll start at verse 18 and read to the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Again, very similar to his reaction to the vision of Christ in, in chapter 7. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you which shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointment time of the end. We're looking forward to the end of days. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, uh, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his generation, from his nation, excuse me, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. You see, God is sovereign over even that. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick 
for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel gets an explanation of the vision from the angel Gabriel, and he still doesn't understand it, according to verse 27. But notice his other reaction in verse 27. He was overcome by sickness. The vision made him sick. This is a different reaction than the awestruck wonder that he experienced at the vision of the Christ in chapter 7. This is that sickness that you get in the pit of your stomach when you know that something terrible is about to happen to someone that you love. Daniel may not understand God's plan, but he got enough of it to know that his own people, the people that he loved and cared for deeply, were going to suffer. As verse 24 explains that this evil ruler will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And then in verse 25 it says that without warning he shall destroy many. And so not only did Daniel not understand God's plan, but after hearing what was going to befall God's people, we find out that Daniel didn't like God's plan. In fact, he disliked it so much that it made him physically sick. And again, I think that sometimes as believers, we feel that if we're as in tune with God as we should be, that we will not only understand God's plan for our lives, that we should always be happy about it also. But listen, I guarantee you when Jesus was on his knees in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was about to be crucified, he wasn't happy about God's plan in that moment. In fact, uh, we know that he wasn't because he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Luke 2.42. Jesus didn't like God's plan at that moment. Daniel didn't like God's plan when he was given this vision. And we may not always like the plan that God lays out before us either. And you know what? That's actually okay. As long as we respond in faithful obedience despite the fact that we're not happy about it. What did Jesus pray immediately after? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even though he didn't like the plan, he was faithfully obedient to the plan. What did Daniel do after becoming physically sick over the plan that God had revealed to him? He said, I rose and went about the king's business. Even though, verse 27 says that he was appalled by the vision, he was faithfully obedient to the work that God had called him to. I've told my own kids their entire lives, anytime I give them something to do and they respond negatively because they don't like what they've been given to do. In other words, they don't like dad's plan. I've said to them throughout their lives, listen, you don't have to like it. I'm actually, I'm actually fine with you not liking what I've told you to do. You don't have to like it, but you still have to do it. It's okay to not always be happy about it, but it's not okay to be disobedient. There will be times in our lives when we neither understand or are happy about God's great plan, and that is actually okay. It doesn't automatically mean that there's something wrong in your Christian walk. It may simply be the fact, as God put it to Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 9, that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Fact is, sometimes we're just not going to get it. We don't even have to like it. 
but we must remain faithfully obedient because even though we don't get it and we may not like it, God is still carrying out his great plan. His plans will move forward either way. And by the way, this plan is greater than anything we could ever hope to manufacture on our own. Which brings us back to the introduction of this message. One of the reasons that we sometimes have a hard time understanding God's plan or even being happy about it is because we tend to focus on just our individual piece of that plan and we turn a blind eye to the rest of the plan. We only read our lines in the script and so we don't really have a handle always a good understanding of what's happening with the rest of the plan, which was partly the issue here for Daniel. You see, all that he could think about was what was going to happen to his people, the Jews, and understandably so. However, he was missing the rest of the script. You see, we know that the Old Testament focuses on the future coming of Jesus Christ, right? The New Testament Gospels focus on the life of Jesus Christ. And everything after that focuses on the church of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ, and yet there isn't any bigger player in that story than the gospel, uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, than his church. In fact, from before uh, any of this was created, God had a great plan for the church to first be formed and then to spread and multiply like wildfire in order uh, to lead the world to Jesus Christ. Now, what does that have to do with Daniel and his vision? Well, I'm glad you asked because it has everything to do with Daniel and his vision, okay? Before Alexander the Great came along, the ancient civilized world was characterized by a myriad of different languages and beliefs and philosophies and cultures, uh, ideas about religion and deities, and on and on and on and on. However, once Alexander the Great showed up, that nasty goat with the one really sharp horn who brutally asserted his rule over almost all of the ancient civilized world, one of his hallmarks in his military campaigns was not only to conquer these other nations, but to completely convert them to the Greek way of life, including their language, which was called Koine Greek or Common Greek, which later under the Roman Empire, the, the fourth beast from chapter 7, became the common tongue of the West. And so because there was now a nearly universal language throughout the civilized world, Christianity was able to spread through the church rapidly as even the new Christian writings were all in Koine Greek or common Greek that everyone understood. Wouldn't have been the case if Alexander the Great hadn't come along. And because under the Roman Empire, common Greek was the language of the conquered rather than the conquerors, the Christian writings were not associated with imperialism or military domination. So people were much more willing uh, to engage with those writings. And so the dissemination of new ideas happened very rapidly in a way that would never have happened had Daniel's vision not come true. And it even goes deeper than that because common Greek carried with it these large philosophical and theological vocabularies already, which made it greatly suited to the spread of a religious message or religious idea beyond the Greek language. Greek philosophy in many ways actually rejected polytheism, if you can believe that. Plato ridiculed the gods and spoke out against the crude polytheism of the masses, he called it. And in Plato's highest idea was goodness, 
which he related to a personal creator God. Aristotle had identified a single he called prime mover that is above change and decay. Zeophanes declared that there are many gods according to custom, but only one according to nature, and there is one God, the greatest among gods and men, unlike mortals in appearance, unlike in thought. And so of all these Greek ideas, they adapted very well to the teachings of Christ. In a sense, they paved the way for people's openness to the message of the gospel. And possibly the most important form of Greek philosophy that was adopted by the Roman Empire was that of Stoicism. Uh, it's a system of thought that taught the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and it held to a, a high, strict code of ethics. All prominent elements in Christian teachings. You see, the fulfillment of Daniel's vision that he was sick about paved the way for the gospel to spread throughout the world by way of the church of Jesus Christ. God used Alexander's passion to spread Greek culture to prepare the world for the gospel. Obviously, Daniel could have never understood that. It couldn't be expected to like everything that was going to have to happen in order for the church to be able to thrive and the gospel to spread some 600 plus years later. You see, God's great plan is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we play a big part in that, obviously, but we simply cannot fathom the breadth of all that that will mean for us, even in just our lifetime. God had a plan for Daniel, but God's great plan was much bigger than just Daniel. We have to remember that when we get confused or even disgusted with the path that he has us on because we are not the center of God's great plan. Jesus Christ is. And we have the privilege of being a part of that great plan through good times and even through hard times, all to ultimately accomplish his purposes. God accomplished his great plan through a pagan king leading a pagan nation doing horrible things to good people. That's not how any of us would have scripted it, right? We wouldn't. Who chooses the bad guy with bad intentions whose motives appear to be working toward the very opposite ends that we're working toward? Who chooses that guy to be the one to achieve their plan, to fulfill the script? Who, who in the world would ever plan for the guy or those kind of means to be the way that the plan is achieved? None of us. None of us would ever have scripted it that way. So why are we so surprised when our lives turn out differently than we planned? It's because none of us would ever script our lives the way that God does. We just wouldn't. If we could write our own script, which we cannot, by the way, no matter how much we think we can, but if we could write our own script, how many of us would say, well, uh, I'll lose my job here and then there'll be uh, some great years over here, my family growing, and then I'll go four months over here without pay, and then we'll have to sell some things until I uh, find this job over here that pays less, but maybe it meets our basic needs. And then, uh, man, 2009, that was an amazing year. But a few years later, I'll have this injury, and I'll end up dealing with a physically limiting debility for this many years before I finally experience healing, and I'm back on my feet again, and, and then we'll end up moving over here to help our daughter raise her child as a single parent. And on and on and on, right? Nobody would write their own script that way. But that is exactly how our scripts are written. They're chock full 
of some amazingly wonderful times and a whole lot of mediocre times and even a few really, really difficult times that we don't understand and we definitely don't like. And yet all the way through it, God is doing things in us and through us that not only grow us more and more into His likeness each day, but He is changing the world through us, His church, often in ways that we never see or realize this side of heaven. The church was able to spread because of the terrifying conquests of a pagan king. And even after that, the church has grown most rapidly throughout history during its very worst times of persecution. And nobody asks for that. But the end of the script has already been written. And the end says that the more of those hard times that we go through for his sake in this life, not only the more blessed that we will be, but the better the ending is for us. Of course, when we're in the middle of something hard, it's often difficult to see God's hand at work because it usually happens incrementally, day by day, step after step, decision after decision, relationship after relationship. God is constantly placing us in situations, sometimes difficult ones, in order to use us to His ends to accomplish His great plan. But if we're only focused on our lines in the script, if we only primarily pay attention to our part in the story, we're going to miss out on all that he's doing around us, even as he works through us. And so our suffering, I know it often feels needless or pointless when many times it is actually working to great, tremendous effect in the lives of others who encounter us during those difficult times that we go through, which is why it is so very important, vitally important that we remain faithfully obedient to his voice and his word, even when we don't understand his plan and even though we don't like it because even though sometimes his plan includes difficult days, in the end, we're guaranteed a good outcome and a future full of hope and fulfillment. So just as Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity, subjected to horrors that most of us couldn't imagine at the hands of the Babylonians, God spoke these words over them. Through the prophet Jeremiah, we heard them earlier, while they were in the middle of their greatest suffering, God said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, no matter what hardship we face, no matter the depth of our struggle or hurt or pain, God has not forgotten us. He has promised us a good future full of hope. In fact, numerous times in both the Old and New Testaments, he says that he will neither leave us nor forsake us and that he's with us always. And so even when we do face hard times, he's with us and he will use us to accomplish his will during our most difficult hours as long as we remain faithful and obedient to his great plan.